1 Kings chapter 12, and 13. The text that we'll be focusing on is 1 Kings 13, but we'll pick up towards the end of chapter 12, verse 25. 1 Kings 12, 25, and we'll read through the end of 13. This is the word of God. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah." So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of, of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, a man of, Ju- a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the, by the way that you came. 
So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So so they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So far from the word of God, as we are... 
As mentioned, our text for this morning is 1 Kings 13. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, surely this passage is one of the most bizarre and mysterious passages of the Old Testament. After an initial reading, we kind of wonder, what are we even supposed to do with a story like this, and that's certainly what I wondered at the beginning of the week. Why was a story like this recorded for us? It leaves us with so many unanswered questions like, why does God kill the one prophet whose failure was at least understandable, and yet he doesn't kill the other prophet who blatantly lied in the name of the Lord? Or what's with the lion and the donkey standing there? Why are those significant? And and there's the big question, what's the overall message for us? This chapter, it it stands out like a pause, like an interlude in, in the history of Israel. And we're left wondering, why is it even there? Well, let's try and answer some of those questions as we turn our attention to the text. In verse 1, we find Jeroboam, that's the king of Israel, the northern ten tribes, standing before an altar in Bethel about to offer a sacrifice to God on that altar with a golden calf nearby, which is supposed to represent God. It's like one of those, those pictures you find on the back of cereal boxes that says, you know, how many things can you find wrong with, with this picture? Now, it was probably a very solemn, serious ceremony. Not that Jeroboam was a godly man, but he had figured out something that every successful politician knows to win the people's loyalty you have to present yourself as a politician, as, as a very spiritual person. It doesn't matter whether, whether your life actually looks like anything spiritual or whether that spirituality is in any way biblical, but people like political leaders who also present themselves as very spiritual people. And that's exactly what Jeroboam did. He puts himself as the head of the worship of God at these golden calves. So we find Jeroboam here standing next to this golden calf representation of God and about to offer up sacrifices to God on this altar that he built in Bethel. And it's all a very solemn and you can just imagine a very spiritual ceremony. And then as that ceremony is is happening, a man works his way to the front of the crowd and suddenly he breaks the solemnity of the, the whole occasion by yelling out at that altar, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. It's not a very good person to mention right now in, in northern Israel. They had just broken off of the line of David. And he says, This son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That's one way to ruin a solemn ceremony. Just about everything about this kind of interruption would have been annoying to the people there. First, the people would have immediately recognized that this was a southerner from Judah. They would have had distinct accents already by this point. And that would have been just the sort of person they would have expected to come along and ruin the fun. Because this whole thing was set up to prevent people from having contact with Judah. 
And, and if the fact that, that a southerner was there ruining the ceremony, if that wasn't enough, he had to bring up the line of David. The Israelites were absolutely sick of David's line, and understandably so. We saw that with Rehoboam a couple weeks before. And so they had just declared their independence from the, the Davidic kings. It would be kind of like if a Canadian went down to the U.S. right after the revolution and said, thus says King George. It wouldn't have gone over well. So they were probably thinking, somebody get that crazy southerner loyalist out of here. We've never heard of the son of David, Josiah, and frankly, we don't care much for the one that we have heard of either. Just the kind of person they would have expected to come along and ruin the fun. And then before the security guards could even get to this this man, the prophet also yelled out, And this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, that altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Well, at this point, Jeroboam yells out for somebody to get his hands on that guy. But the moment he does so, his outstretched hand withered up such that he couldn't even pull it back to himself. We don't know what exactly God did to his arm, but it's a good reminder that we're ultimately completely dependent on God even for the strength to move our own muscles. Well, at that point, it would have been really nice if the king could just kind of shrink back and pretend like he didn't say anything. But everyone could see him there with his arm outstretched, his finger pointing to the prophet, and he couldn't even pull it back to himself. Kind of, it's like social media where once a politician opens his mouth, there's there's no taking it back. So there he is, stuck in front of everyone with his, his arm pointed out at the prophet. And then to make matters worse, right before everyone's eyes, that altar did break into. The ashes were poured out, and it would have been a terrifying thing for anyone there who saw it. Well, the king clearly had enough sense to to recognize when he lost. So he changes his tune. Changing circumstances demand changing relationships. This is politics, after all. So verse 6, he says to the prophet, Well, please entreat the Lord for, for me, your God, that my hand may be restored to me. It's a pretty humbling favor to have to ask from your enemy. Can you please ask your God if, if I can have my arm back? Well, the prophet of Judah did. He asked God, and God granted the request. But at that point, it was obvious to everyone the king had been thoroughly humiliated, and that ceremony was certainly over. So the king did what every smart politician would do in that moment. He does his best to act like he's still the one in control of the situation, and he pretends that he and this prophet are really, at the end of the day, working for the same cause. They're on the same team. If you can't beat them, join them. So he invited the prophet to come to his palace and refresh himself, and he even promises him this reward. It takes a lot of nerve to try and pretend that you're in a position of doing this this prophet a favor right after he's taken control of your arm away from you. But he must have hoped that at least this would leave the people with some impression that he was still the one doing the prophet a favor. He's the one in control, in the position of power. He's being a smart politician. He's gaining the upper hand out of a very tough situation. Well, unfortunately for Jeroboam, 
God had already prepared his prophet for exactly this kind of approach, and he had strictly warned the prophet not to eat or drink or even return by the way that he came, probably so that they couldn't track him down afterwards. So the prophet says in in verse 8, if you were to give me half your house, I still wouldn't go with you. It's quite the insult, and no doubt the, the king would have been shocked by that refusal. Like so many unbelievers in positions of of wealth and power, the king just couldn't imagine that someone wouldn't want his gifts. Someone wouldn't want to be his friend. He only knew how to think in terms of money and power, and he had no eyes to see how really pathetically poor he was in respect to God. So this prophet humiliated him again, rejected his pathetic offer, and turned his back on him. And that's the end of what happens, as far as we know, before the altar. The text then takes us to Bethel, to a town there in in northern Israel. There's an old prophet living in Bethel. And his sons come to him and tell him about what happened at the altar. So presumably they were there. Now already, just just the fact that this this prophet is, is living in Bethel should warn us that he's probably not going to be a very faithful prophet. Bethel was not exactly the heartland of of religious fundamentalism in that day. And the fact that his sons were there at Jeroboam's sacrifice should also arouse our suspicions. This is probably not going to be a faithful prophet. But this old prophet was interested in this young man of God from Judah. The writer here doesn't tell us why he took an interest in him. Maybe he just found the, the younger prophet amusing. Maybe he even reminded him of himself back when he was a young prophet, back when he perhaps still had convictions. So whatever the case, he gets his sons to saddle a donkey for him, and he goes after this man of God. And when he found the man of God, he asked him to join him for dinner, even though, of course, he would have known, his sons told him exactly what the prophet told the king, so he would have known that the prophet couldn't stay for dinner. And to his credit, the man of God told him exactly the same thing that he told the king. He said, sorry, God gave me strict orders not to stop or eat or drink or even return by the way that I came. But then the old prophet did something unexpected. Verse 18, he said, well, I also am a prophet just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. And then our text tells us in a little parentheses, this was a flat-out lie, which, of course, we should already know, because God doesn't, uh, God, God doesn't change. And it tells us a lot about the character of this older prophet from Bethel. We can take him as sort of an example of a representative example of the quality of the prophets that you might find in northern Israel at that time. Whatever convictions he might have had as a young prophet and a man of God, he certainly has long abandoned them at this point. He's lying to another prophet. But then the man of God from Judah does something that's unbelievable. Surely the author, when he wrote uh, this, this chapter, would have been expecting us to just stop and think, wait, he, he did what? He actually went with this prophet. After all his courage and his conviction facing the, the very powerful king of Israel, he turns around and follows a lying prophet back to his home. 
There's an important lesson there for us today. A pastor's greatest vulnerability, his greatest point of weakness is always his wife or his colleagues. All kinds of convictions, as history has shown this again and again, all kinds of convictions disappear with the influence of fellow pastors and professors. You look at denominations and federations that used to preach the word of God faithfully and boldly, and you think, what happened to those churches? Well, history shows that that decay usually starts from the top and goes down, from seminaries, from ministerial conferences. And it doesn't take much. One false prophet with influence can do an incredible amount of damage. That's a prophet and a pastor's weak spot. It's amazing. This man of God, he stood up so boldly to the king of Israel who could have had him killed for what he said. And he lost all of his courage and his conviction to a fellow prophet, an older colleague. And it's true not just for prophets or for pastors. It's true for Christians in general as well. Sometimes we can be so courageous and so honest about our convictions in front of unbelievers, in front of the world, and, that, and yet we find ourselves crumbling in our convictions when we're with fellow Christians, people who call themselves Christians. Well, as they were sitting there enjoying dinner, suddenly the word of God did come to this older prophet from Bethel. Probably had been quite a while since that had last happened. And he suddenly broke the conversation and cried out in verse 21, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. And that's exactly what happened. After they finished dinner, he went on his way, and a lion, we read about it, met him on the road and killed him. But then you notice the lion didn't even bother to eat the body of the man that he had killed, and, and it didn't even bother to hurt the donkey. It just stood there next to the body and next to the donkey. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what exactly all of this means. Maybe, some say maybe the, the lion represents Judah somehow, and, and the donkey represents Israel, and, and so on. And there's a number of different interpretations like that. But I think, for one thing, that kind of interpretation tends to mythologize the whole story. It's presented to us as factual history, and that kind of interpretation turns it into a symbolic sort of myth. And the second thing is, that looking for that kind of meaning in a story like this can overcomplicate the whole story and end up missing the main point. The point here, the reason that God ordained that the lion would do that, to stand next to the body without doing anything further, was simply to show everyone that this was an obvious act of God. Lions don't usually act that way. Lions don't usually kill for sport, and they certainly wouldn't kill a person and then just stand there next to the donkey. And so that's, that's what's being highlighted here for us. This is an act of God. Well, word got back to Bethel pretty quickly, and when the older prophet heard about what happened, he immediately recognized who this person was, and he immediately went to see the scene and understood exactly what it meant. He recognized this was an act of God because of the disobedience that he had caused this other prophet to commit. So he took the body back, 
And for this, this old, liberal, unfaithful prophet of God, it must have been a very quiet and thoughtful journey as he's carrying the body of his fellow prophet back. He must have reflected on his own life as a prophet of God. Maybe in his younger days, he wasn't all that different from this man of God. But now he had just robbed this young man of his courage and conviction and had even caused his death. And so when he got back to the, the city, we read that he and his sons buried this man of God from Judah. And then the prophet, the living prophet, the older man, cried out, Alas, my brother. And he says to his sons in verse 31, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. In his final words, he realized that he and that other prophet should have been like brothers. They should have been standing side by side, rebuking the king of Israel together, carrying the word of God with courage and conviction also in Bethel, instead of just going along with the trends in the northern kingdom. There's nothing sadder than a minister of God's word or a prophet who discovers in his old age that he's lost all of the courage and conviction he had in his youth to those trends of liberalism that just eat away at a man's faith and at the faith of so many churches. So what do we make of this bizarre story? Well, I think the biggest lesson of this story has to do with Jeroboam. The author nowhere says, well, here's the moral of the story, it's this or that. But if you look at verse 33, right after the story is over, the author says, after this event, Jeroboam still did not return from his evil way. But he again made priests from, of the high places from among all the people, and any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So the author recorded this story for us, first of all, to tell us something about Jeroboam. If you know the rest of the book of Kings, if you've read it before, you know that this, this sin of worshiping these golden calves is a sin that just comes back again and again with nearly every single king that follows Jeroboam. He set the precedent, and right here at the beginning, God made clear exactly what he thought about that precedent. Well, if we reflect on the story here, I can see at least five ways that Jeroboam is being warned. Let's see if you can spot those as well. The first, is, the first warning is simply the warning of history itself. It says in chapter 12, verse 28, that Jeroboam took counsel and decided to make these golden calves. And you have to stop and think, did he seriously not consider the history behind golden calves? The last time Israel tried worshiping God with a golden calf was with Aaron, and it doesn't take a scholar to know that that didn't turn out well. And it's amazing because if you read the text carefully, you notice Jeroboam repeats Aaron's mistake word for word. He says in chapter 12, verse 28, with the exact same words that Aaron used, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you out out of the land of Egypt. So the first warning here is simply the warning of history repeating itself. Jeroboam would have had the books of Moses recording how the Israelites worshipped a golden calf and recording how God nearly destroyed them because of it. 
And so the saying holds true that those who don't learn their history are bound to repeat it. And that's certainly true also with respect to biblical history. And it's true for us today as well. It's one of the reasons that God gave us the Old Testament. And and one of the reasons that we should continue to study the Old Testament, especially the historical parts of it. God gave those for many reasons, but certainly one of those reasons is so that we can see ourselves against the backdrop of history. And we can recognize when the church or when a Christian country begins to follow those same patterns. How often when we, even as individuals, when we fall into sin, isn't it the case that the very first warning we get is the warning that we already know from Scripture, that inconsistency between the lives we're living and the life that Scripture calls us, the pattern of life that we find in God's Word. So that's the first warning, the warning of history. The second warning that Jeroboam receives is the warning from the prophet that God had sent Jeroboam knew better. He knew that the temple was the place where God had made his name to dwell, and that any prophet coming from there ought to be listened to. But he chose not to listen to that prophet. The third warning is there when God intervened and removed Jeroboam's control of his own arm. At that point, you would certainly think a man would stop and repent. And yet he doesn't. The fourth warning is the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy where the altar split in two and the ashes were poured out. And maybe that, that picture of the altar splitting in two is another reminder of when the, when the Israelites worshipped the golden calves and Moses split the Ten Commandments in two in front of them. In any case, you would certainly think that for Jeroboam to see the altar breaking into at the word of that prophet would, would be enough to bring this man to his senses. And yet, sadly still, it wasn't enough. And there's a good lesson there for us as well. There's no reason to think that someone who lives in God's world with everything around him bearing God's signature and testifying to God's glory, and with the knowledge of God written on his heart, as Romans 1 says, and the word of God even entrusted to his hands, as was the case for Jeroboam and for many Christians today, there's no reason to think that such a person, having all that evidence, and yet giving himself over to sin, that one more piece of evidence is going to be enough to bring him to repentance. Apart from God's working, that repentance is never going to come, no matter how much evidence is thrown his way. Well, the fifth and the final warning that Jeroboam receives is what happens in the rest of this story with the two prophets, with the man of God from from Judah being killed. And you can see that this is meant as evidence against Jeroboam by the way that verse 33 only comes after the story is over and not right there after after verse 10. So the reason this whole story is evidence of God's intent to, to fulfill his word and to destroy Jeroboam is we can see that God shows no partiality, no favoritism even for his own prophet. See, Jeroboam might have made the excuse for himself well, that, you know, that old man, that, that man of God from Judah is only motivated by political ambitions. Of course he doesn't like this golden calf because he's from Judah. He wants us all to go to Judah. 
But God demonstrated that the truth of his word has nothing to do with the individual who's charged to speak it. When God speaks through the preaching of the word or through the admonition of a fellow Christian or through the words of a prophet, how often aren't we tempted to say, well, you're just saying that because you know, you're an elder in the church or you're just saying that because you have an axe to grind or you're just saying that because you have certain loyalties or allegiances. And that's this, the excuse that Jeroboam and the people would have used to ignore the man of God from Judah. But the old prophet from Bethel realized the truth when he saw the body of God's servant laying there in the road as a result of his own word that he had spoken. And so he says to his sons in verse 32, after they buried the prophet, this thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the city of Samaria. The proof is in the fact that the man's message even got himself killed. It was of no advantage even to himself. And there's something to say for that kind of evangelism also for us. When we share the gospel, people should realize we are under its truth as much as anybody else. They should never see us making excuses for ourselves when we're speaking God's word, which is a very easy thing for us Christians to do. They should be able to see us not just sharing the gospel with them, but daily needing the gospel for ourselves and repenting where God's word calls us to repent. That's how you witness for the gospel. As Christians, we don't just carry God's word out to others. We live under it ourselves. And that's the very first thing that people should be able to see. Well, that said, the incredible thing is, in verse 33, that none of these warnings, as it turns out, were enough to turn Jeroboam back from his sin. Even the liberal prophet from Bethel figured it out, but Jeroboam still didn't. Apart from God's grace and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no warnings are ever going to be enough. So Jeroboam does what every sinner apart from God's grace would do. He rebuilt that broken altar. He appointed new priests to serve there. And as Israel's king, his sin became Israel's sin. Now all of that was in God's plan because God intended to bring down Jeroboam's kingdom. And here's the second lesson for us then. God's people needed to see that God's kingdom would never come through an ungodly man like Jeroboam. God doesn't need a man of wealth or respect or military might. Jeroboam was certainly all of those things. But instead, a man of righteousness to lead his people. A man who would obey him and serve him. And incidentally, that's also what we should be looking for in our political leaders. And so because Jeroboam was certainly not that, not a man of righteousness, not a man who would lead God's people to obey, God would bring down Jeroboam's godless kingdom so that Israel and the whole world would learn what kind of king 
to start looking for. And this is what you see in every chapter of the book of Kings from here on out. It's one of the overarching messages of the book of Kings. It's this long storyline that cries out every chapter a little bit louder for a king who would come to lead God's people in righteousness, who wouldn't be like the ungodly kings that they had, who could fix the problem of idolatry in the people's hearts. And in fact, that's true not just of kings, but of really the whole Old Testament. It leaves us with this big, open-ended question mark. Who's going to fix this problem? How is this ever going to get better? And we know as Christians, that answer is only ever going to come in Jesus Christ. God sent Christ to be the king that Jeroboam never was, never could be, and no other king ever was either, not even the great David. So Christ, when he came to save Israel, Christ was the only king who was actually able to answer the root problem, the idolatry that existed in the people's hearts. He was the only king who was actually able to turn things around, to establish justice. And now he reigns in heaven, not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. And the book of Kings looks forward, it cries forward desperately for such a king to come. So I think the main point of this chapter is to show how stubborn Jeroboam was and how justified God was in bringing that kingdom down, but also to direct Israel to start looking for a king that would be obedient and that would lead God's people in righteousness away from their idolatry. But this chapter isn't only about kings and kingdoms. It's also about prophets, people who have the responsibility from God to carry God's word to the nations and even to their own leaders. See, our age today in 2017 really isn't all that different from that age in Israel. Christ is reigning over our country, and he demands, just like God demanded of Israel, he demands that our leaders honor him and obey him and do justice and righteousness. And just like in those days, the reality is almost all of our leaders today are self-professing Christians. They, are, they claim to be believers in God. It's true of our prime minister. It's true of all the leading candidates in all the major parties. And it's true of most of the leaders in, in the province of Ontario and certainly most of the leaders in the city of Alora. These are self-professing Christians, just like in that day. And it isn't even just our leaders, it's our neighbors too. Most of our neighbors call themselves Christians, just like the people of Israel would have called themselves worshippers of God. 67% of Canadians call themselves Christians by the latest measurements. But of course, we know this would be a very different country if that profession was actually true. But since it is their profession We shouldn't be afraid as Christians to call on them to honor that profession. See, too easily we allow ourselves to to miss the opportunities that are before us to call long-lost sheep back to the faith of their parents or maybe their grandparents or great-grandparents because we feel like they're part of the world. We have nothing to appeal to with them. But the reality is, for most of them, for two-thirds, we do have something to appeal to. 
The man of God was able to go to Jeroboam to appeal to him to repent because, precisely because he claimed to be a worshiper of Yahweh, even though that, that claim was obviously insincere. So many self-professed Christians in this country are on the road to hell because their lives don't match their professions. They claim to know God, and yet they neither honor Him as Lord nor serve Him with their lives. So in many ways, our country is not all that different from Israel in the time of the kings. 67% of Canadians claim to be Christians, and yet we find this country is filled with immorality, with greed, with injustice, with every indication that that profession is not reality. And so here we are as Christians. We, the Catechism says that we, as, as Christians, are also prophets. We are prophets called to, to be prophets to our country, and that's whether our country is Saudi Arabia with almost 0% Christians or Canada with two-thirds, 67% Christians. But as we carry out that office of prophet, this text also then calls us to watch ourselves. We aren't just called to speak his word boldly in public. We're also called to obey his word diligently in private where the world can't see us. Our witness to the world gains us nothing if in the end Christ isn't honored, first of all, in our own hearts, our own homes, and other places where the world doesn't get to see us. And so that also means we need to keep watch over ourselves and over this church that we wouldn't go the way of that old prophet from Bethel nor the way of that man of God from Judah, who strayed from the word of God under the influence of people who had long ago already abandoned the faith. The reality is that unbelieving, liberalizing influence is is not a new thing. It's as old as ancient Israel and older still, and it's destroyed the conviction of so many Christians and believers and churches and federations that once used to stand for the truth. So let's pray, brothers and sisters, that God would keep us from going the way of that prophet, of either of those two prophets. Because the word of God that we carry to the world does not make exceptions for those who carry it. The repentance and the faith that we're calling the world to must always be the repentance and faith that we call ourselves to as well. Or otherwise we will find ourselves like those two men, having called the world to obedience and yet failed to obey themselves. And of course, this isn't a call to legalism. It isn't a call to mere outward morality. It isn't a call to lift up that heavy burden of obedience. No, it's a call to Christ. It's a call to faith, to believe. And then as we believe, to let that faith begin to rule our hearts and every aspect of our lives. The word of God that we carry to the world as prophets is a word of grace, of mercy. It's a a word of opportunity to repent as long as it's still called today. And so to call ourselves to that word is to call ourselves to the most joyful burden imaginable. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. 
So let's call the world then, brothers and sisters, and let's call ourselves to repentance again and to faith in Christ and obedience to him. Amen.